Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Right now, we know that investors are hoping for returns that are often bigger uh, than what a lot of institutional managers will say that they can get, and they don't want extra taxes cutting into that. Uh, And there's a new popular way to avoid taxes that has hmm, a name that's less than exciting, insurance-dedicated funds. Here to tell us a little bit more about these and why they're a little bit more exciting than they sound, Tom Metcalf who is a Blue Producer reporter and joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Tom, what exactly are insurance-dedicated funds? So they're a pretty complicated product. Basically, they're a way for very wealthy investors to invest in hedge funds and without have to pay any sort of tax on those gains. So there's two types, uh, a life insurance product and an annuity product. Um, but basically what you do as an investor, you effectively buy a life insurance product and then that insurer will invest for you into a hedge fund, and then there is absolutely zero tax on that. Do you have a sense of how big the idea for the insurance dedicated fund industry has become? So it's pretty hard to get like official statistics. One guy said, you know, people are trying to keep this relatively quiet just because I'm it's sure. so successful. They don't want everyone else to know how well it's going. But one one guy sort of estimated for us it was at least 15 and perhaps 18 billion in terms of total assets. And that's tripled over the last uh, 10 years or so. Let me just get a handle on this because it's not necessarily new that insurance policies are used for things like estate planning purposes, right? If you have a projected tax bill because of your estate, many times what you'll do is you, if you can afford it, you will pay the premium for an insurance policy whose payoff value to the beneficiaries is equal to whatever the tax liability is. So in other words, you're getting a tax-free distribution from your insurance policy, and you use that money to go and pay your estate taxes. That's already well-known, and I mean, I mean, it's pretty widely widespread, correct? Yeah, and this is sort of, I guess, even more granular than that. Uh, so it's become A, more popular, because what we're seeing is obviously family offices have exploded, so you're getting so many more investors out there who can afford to you know, leave their money locked away effectively for decades. And also, um, the difference here is, effectively, you can, with this structure, effectively avoid um, any sort of tax on that death benefit if it's structured correctly. Well, so just to give us a sense of how this differs from a typical annuity, just in terms of the promised yields, what kind of returns on their investments have uh, some of these wealthy individuals been expecting to receive? So in some of the marketing documents, it's basically over, say, a 40-year period. You can, uh, under a normal structure, get about $50 million in terms of a total. You invest, say, two, I think it was $2.5 million over four years and then leave it there, you know, making returns for 40-odd years. And that would be $50 million under a normal structure. And in this sort of totally tax-free structure, that rises to about $120 million. Holy cow. It's so- worth it. Well, that's because of the, ta- the, 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 the tax status of, well, the, no, of the investment, I, no, right? Because it's growing. No, this isn't the tax status. This is because they're investing in hedge funds. They're not investing in just sort of income-producing securities, right? Um, it's, it's both, basically. So um, it's effectively, in, in terms of that $120 million, Basically, if you are the beneficiary rather than the insured, that $120 million will land in your bank account for all effect without any tax at all. Right, because it's an insurance payout. Uh, yeah, because it's a life insurance payout. 
Right. And when meaning life insurance, meaning you're not going to get it, the beneficiary is going to get uh, it. So, well, I could uh, buy the policy for and insure someone else. So I could be the beneficiary. So, you know, let's say I have a nice elderly relative. Perhaps that might be uh, a thing I could do if I had the spare. You know, people say about you need seven right. to eight million. Well, that dollars. also used to be a very popular investment product, which is banks, companies. I mean, they were viatical settlements. In other words, you would insure someone else. And when they passed away that the benefit of that a policy would accrue to you because you paid the premiums for that person yeah exactly and and the, the i guess the twist here is the the involvement of hedge funds right so that you get to select because exactly. typically you don't get to select what the insurance company invests in but now you're saying that you can do this by selecting these specific kinds of products these uh idfs yeah you've got to be very careful so the irs looks very closely at this in terms of you know you can't show what they term investor control but basically and this is another reason why it's becoming more popular is what you can do is move from fund to fund so let's say you're invested in one hedge fund and you go ah oh, i can't tell them what to invest in but i don't like their performance you can move to another, they're called insurance dedicated funds, without any sort of um, kind of implications and tax-wise or anything. This is such an interesting story. And one thing that you talk about is that these vehicles have become so mainstream that you've got banks like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs offering them, as well as hedge funds like Paulson uh, and Company and Millennium Partners. And it was interesting and, and somewhat telling that no one wanted to comment for your story whatsoever. And, you know, do you, do you think that... Um, that there is some concern that regulators could kind of home in and try to uh, remove the loophole that's kind of being exploited here? Yeah, we were asking the various uh, people who spoke on the story about that. And what has happened recently is the IRS has constantly, uh, you know, raised a few lawsuits and stuff. I, I think at the moment there's a feeling, which is why, again, popularity is increasing. As long as you're very clear and, and can make this case for investor control that you're not involved, that they're quite secure. And I think part of the reason they're not commenting as well is, uh, you know, they, it's a private placement. So they don't, they're not really allowed to talk about sort of client issues like that. Yeah, at least that's what they told their us. Their compliance department would probably have, <laughs> yeah, a, uh, you know, exactly. a, a brain... Uh, uh, meltdown uh, just just quickly insurance payouts are in a sense guaranteed right you buy a life insurance policy for a million dollars it pays out a million dollars in this case you buy a life insurance policy to invest in hedge funds is there any guarantee um i mean it's variable and in fact there was a case where a, a guy uh who invested in these is a rich hedge fund guy and invested in a idf and then tried to sue them because they didn't get the returns he wanted so there is definitely that risk level but when you take out tax as long as you're not going for a super super high risk fund then it's just easy returns on that level at least it's almost like having an additional ira right i mean the money grows exactly. tax-free although the ira case you actually pay tax when you pull the money out in this case you could potentially not pay anything thanks very much tom metcalf always a pleasure talking about uh, idfs we're talking about insurance dedicated funds check it out bloomberg.com Well, companies all across the world are still grappling with a cyber attack that's similar to the WannaCry attack that we saw a couple months ago. Um, it's reached parts of Asia after hitting Europe, U.S., South America. And who is really to blame? I want to bring in Robert Knapps, chief executive officer and co-founder of CyberGhost, which is based in Bucharest, Romania. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. 
In previous news articles, you've been quoted saying that, frankly, governments are in large part to blame for some of these cyber attacks because they're, you know, for example, the U.S. NSA will find some of these loopholes and problems with programs, widely used programs, and they won't report them because they want to be able to access people's information. Can you talk a little bit about that? Exactly. I mean, I was talking a couple of years now about the fact that we have to decide in the future how we want to move forward with online security. One of the big problems we see now, and these attacks shows it, um, and believe me, we are just now before the next attack. Because all these attacks we see, how we saw in the last years, are using so-called backdoors, um, means um, loopholes in in normally secure systems that are either implemented by um, national security organizations or detected by national security uh, agencies and not reported to the developers because these agencies use them to spy on people, which weakens the security for all of us. And I think we need to make a decision um, as, a, as a society about how we want to proceed in future with putting our whole life uh, on the internet. Robert, would this would it, would an analogy be that you know in in uh, some science fiction movies, you know, you've got the the scientist who's trying you know creating some uh, crazy uh, chemical uh, you know to rule the world, and but it gets loose. Right. It gets loose and someone else takes it and does bad things with it. Is this what's happening right now? I know not exactly. I, I, I know a, a better analogy. It's like, you know, it, it is like we live in a neighborhood and we implement now in our houses absolutely safe doors. So nobody could break into the house. But the police has the idea, let it make even more safe, give all of us, give us a key. So, so we could prevent the bad guys entering the door. Okay, but here's what I don't understand. So Robert, but here's, here's what I don't understand. Because if the government is to blame for not reporting some of these backdoors and loopholes, wouldn't the technology companies hire some people? If these hacks aren't that difficult to do, wouldn't they just hire a team of people to try to break in and go through every back door and find every vulnerability and fix it? Um, I, I disagree. The, the, the point is that would, that would mean that we believe that it's possible to build 100% secure systems. So, and that is simply not possible. Um, we are speaking here about highly complex systems with uh, sometimes hundreds of thousands and millions of lines of code. So the problem is, first of all, we cannot build safe systems. Once we detect the vulnerability, we need to have laws that prevent anyone from using these vulnerabilities and to report these vulnerabilities. So that means we need a common effort into, in, in, into making the web more secure and not making the web more unsecure. And, you know, having state organizations, having these keys and not giving them back to the rightful owners of the doors, that doesn't make sense. And the reality shows that um, 
this is not the way to go for the future because we're going to see now more and more of these uh, kind of attacks that all use vulnerabilities in normally secure systems. Well, given the current political environment, it seems unlikely that there's going to be a consensus about very much, specifically about cyber attacks and trying to put forth some kind of legislation. I'm wondering if you could offer businesses and individuals any advice on how to prepare or deal with the current cyber attack and future attacks. What should people and businesses be doing? Look, the weapon of the 21st century is encryption technology. So the answer exists, the the solution exists, we have it. It's pure mathematics and it's called encryption. So that means protect yourself with tools like our CyberGhost VPN that is an encrypted tunnel to the internet. Use PGP for your email, use encrypted chat systems and do a backup of your data. So the problem that we see right now with the WannaCry attack or with these kind of attacks is that these people lock your data. That means the only way to protect yourself from that is do backups, but do backups, please, in a way that you would encrypt your data in the cloud. So don't do backups in the cloud or backups in your own network that are unencrypted. Encrypt your data. And as long as we don't have backdoors in encrypted solutions, these solutions are really safe. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Robert Knapp is the chief executive and the co-founder of CyberGhost, joining us from Bucharest, Romania. Well, he is here to continue the saga of Puerto Rico. Joe Mysack is our editor for Bloomberg Brief's Municipal Market Brief, and he joins us in studio. Joe, you know, I'm, I guess this is what chapter? I don't even know what chapter this is in the long saga and story of Puerto Rico. But the, the Puerto Rico board has um, rejected the power utilities debt restructuring. Bring us up to date on what's going on. Oh, man. The uh, board last night in executive meeting said that the PREPA deal, which promised to give creditors about 85 cents on the dollar. And was the only deal that they came to pre-bankruptcy. Only deal. Right. Go on. Uh, that uh, that no longer was uh, live and that they should go back. And uh, uh, it looks like now what's going to happen is PREPA is going to wind up in some, uh, you know, they're going to wind up in Title III bankruptcy along with uh, the, uh, you know, the Commonwealth, the GEO holders and COFINA holders are slugging it out. So now you're going to have uh, PREPA in the same boat. And uh, the board not only did that, the board also threw out the budget last night that was passed by the legislature and said, no, you know what? You have to take another $319 million out of this budget. And the budget's about $9.6 billion. So they were very busy last night. The board is asserting their power. Yeah, well, they also, Puerto Rico also said that their fiduciary duty was not to bondholders. It was to residents of the island, which is a stark departure from typical bankruptcies where the company's fiduciary duty really is to creditors, uh, first and foremost, right? Uh, uh, well, uh, you know, the um, yeah, they're arguing that today in court. And, uh, the, you know, actually, the, the adversarial relation 
shipped there. We saw glimpses of it in 1994, 1995 with the Orange County bankruptcy. And then it really came back uh, in Detroit where the city said, well, guess what? Geo bondholders are going to have to take a haircut. And they did. Uh, so the the adversarial nature is something that we have seen in the muni market. The business about, well, we don't really have a fiduciary duty. And guess what? We have to take care of the people on the island first. OK, so if that's the case, why why is anyone surprised? Why is anyone, anyone surprised that uh, the fiduciary uh, board is uh, throwing out these agreements, reducing the amount of money in the budget, basically doing everything that it can to protect the island and its people rather than creditors? Well, no, actually, the board, when it threw out the um, uh, budget, is is really saying, you know, on the one hand, yes, on the prepa deal, they're saying, looks like bondholders are going to have to take more of a haircut than 15 cents on the dollar. But with throwing out the entire budget, they're saying, you haven't made enough cuts. There are going to have to either be employee furloughs, or we might have to cut back those Christmas bonuses to government employees on the island. Uh, so the, the board is being... Uh, uh, how should I put it? They're being very hard right now, and they should be. Well, they're, but they they're taking also control. have no cash. I mean, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal this week about how Puerto Rico is looking to sell itself off in pieces to raise money. Oh, sure. Yeah, and I suspect that the board is going to have a very, um, uh, you know, they'll have something to say about that. Now, whether they, you know, approve those uh, sorts of sales or not, we'll see. But uh, I would say it's almost good, you know, from a, I don't know, from a public finance point of view, that somebody on the island is is sitting down and taking things very, very seriously, as opposed to what's sort of gone on before here. Well, let's can you just put this into some kind of perspective? I think you mentioned what the total budget that was passed was nine point nine point six nine point six billion. Just to give that comparison, you know, the the budget of the city of New York is eighty five billion. Uh, state of Rhode Island, I think about nine point two billion. Why is I mean these are uh, they are large sums, but the havoc that they are going to wreck on the economy is going to last a much longer time than just a one year budget. Is there a cohesive plan, or is anybody thinking about what life in Puerto Rico is going to be like for businesses and people? After this happens, well, presumably the uh, the federal oversight board is, and uh, they they seem to have taken or are taking the long term look. Uh, you mentioned the the havoc that this is going to wreak. Uh, you know, recall back to a nineteen seventy five in New York City, which did not go into Chapter Nine bankruptcy, but entered a period of austerity that that took perhaps ten years. Uh, in many ways, a lot of the the infrastructure problems we're seeing in New York City today are, you know, can almost be traced back to 1975 and that extended period of austerity. So who knows how long it's going to take for Puerto Rico to, you know, turn the corner. You know, Joe, I have to wonder as we talk and focus on Puerto Rico's difficulties, I have to wonder what precedent it sets for Illinois, which is teetering close to junk uh, status with respect to its credit rating and is facing a whole host of problems. I mean, is there anything that debt holders are taking? Are they selling more aggressively because they know that they could get um, they could get shafted in a future reorganization? Actually, uh, you know, the... Uh Banks, I, I've read several analytical comments in the last couple of weeks saying, hey, you know what? 
Illinois actually represents a uh, value right now because it's trading so far out of line, almost 300 basis points over the AAA scale. So Illinois geos, they're talking New Jersey appropriation-backed debt. Uh, the banks are saying that uh, you know these are recommended because the uh, states, unlike Puerto Rico, uh, you know a they don't have bankruptcy right now. Right. But B, the states are still very strong and have a lot of flexibility. Right. Uh, so it sounds, you know, it always it always sounds apocalyptic and uh, no. All right. It's risk on still for uh, at least across uh, Wall Street analytic desks. Joe Mysack, thank you so much for joining us. Joe Mysack is the editor of the Bloomberg Brief that's focused on the municipal market, uh, talking all things in this moment of the Muni. Stock buybacks and free cash flow. How to use them as a strategy in order to make money. Well, Charles Biederman is the chairman of TrimTabs Asset Management, and he joins us now to tell us more. Charles, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here in our studio. Maybe you could just give a little bit of a description as to how you came to formulate this strategy and the experience that you have in implementing it. Well, all there is in the stock market are shares of stock and money. And so if companies are growing cash and using a portion of it to reduce the share count, the price of the remaining shares should go up by the percentage of the share count reduction, everything else being equal, particularly since they're using cash that they're generating. Now, there's a difference if they use cash that they're borrowing because that increases risk and it means they don't have the cash to do it. So you want to buy shares in stock. First, companies are growing cash. And if they're using a portion to reduce the share count and they're not borrowing to buy, that's our strategy for TrimTab's FlowTrink ETF, which we launched in October. And as you know, we've done quite well since I've been on the show many times with you in the past talking about it. Charles, I'm wondering... There are so many people who are launching exchange-traded funds right now. Does it matter whether you have a good idea or is there something else that works with respect to marketing an ETF? Well, I think performance works. It always has and always will. Uh, In essence, we're a hedge fund at a 59 basis point price. In other words, we have a formula no one else does. Now we just launched today, TrimTab's International Free Cash Flow. Uh, TTAI is the ticker symbol. It's going to do exactly what TTFS d- does in the U.S. to non-U.S. stocks. It's going to be about 85 stocks, <clears throat> um, developed countries, Asia, Canada, um, Europe, etc. And uh, it's companies growing free cash flow, reducing the share count, and maintaining a strong balance sheet. So it's a global complement. So the U.S. one has worked. We've outperformed in the past. Uh, the numbers show Morningstar, whatever. We've outperformed by several hundred basis points over the uh, Russell 3000. And we're hoping to uh, count. We, you know, the design purpose of business is to grow cash. Unless, of course, you're Elon Musk or or Netflix, which is design purposes to grow your stock price. But most companies, if they're growing their cash and they use a portion of it to reduce the share count, everybody wins. 
I want to ask you about this idea of stock buybacks, because what happens when a company buybacks, buy, buys back the stock, but doesn't actually retire the shares? In other words, they just sit there in the corporate treasury for use later on, perhaps. Does well, that matter? Uh, yes. We, we don't look at buy, we look at share count. Okay, just how many shares are outstanding. Yeah, what they do, uh, how they got there is not really relevant as long as they have more cash than they started at the beginning of the period and their debt asset ratio didn't go up. You know, it's it's companies uh, are, if they're doing well, the management likes to reduce the share count because the management then owns a greater percentage of the company as does every pre-existing shareholder. And if they're not growing cash, they probably want to sell stock. Well, Charles, how do Apple and Google fit into this equation? We know that Apple, for example, has been a poster child of keeping cash offshore and issuing Mm -hmm. debt to buy back shares simply because they don't want to have to pay the taxes on repatriating some of that cash. So where does that company stand in this whole equation? Well, they're, they've been a member of uh, TTAC uh, uh, from the get-go, uh, or from when they started doing buybacks, which was, I think, after 11. Uh, and they remain. I mean, even though they do borrow occasionally, their debt-to-asset ratio, they're growing cash so fast that even if they borrow money so they don't have to repatriate, and they're borrowing at very little, very low rates, it, they're still in our uh, uh, model. Uh, Google, on the other hand, is not doing any share count reduction that I'm aware of. So while they are, well, I personally own Google because they create their own demand and they're growing cash. Uh, they're, until, until they do buybacks, they won't be in the fund. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting is looking at the constituents of TTFS, which is the domestic. Uh, no? TTAC. TTAC. I beg your pardon. Uh, the uh, domestic. We were, we were the uh, we were removed as sub advisor. Uh, they kept the ticker symbol, but we relaunched under a new ticker symbol, Trimtaps Float Shrink, as TTAC. Okay, so uh, all right, so just so just quickly, th- this idea of being able to uh, put these companies together, eighty-five in the new one, how often do they change? Uh, about uh, 20, uh, I'd say uh, ha- uh, portfolio turnover is a third to a half a year. In other words, we only like the last six months performance. If a company stops growing or stops meeting the criteria, every day we track each of the 3,000 Russell stocks in, on our Bloomberg terminal uh, for a listing of which are the top 100 and every so often we rebalance and typically a significant number fall out yeah charles biederman thank you so much for joining us charles biederman is chairman of trim tabs asset management and he joins us here in our bloomberg 1130 studios talking about his new uh, international free cash flow etf Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.